passage. And so for Easter sermon, we, we have two guest preachers. And we're going to all watch them by video. We're all tired here, so we figured we'd take the week off. And we contracted with two guest speakers. And so would you please welcome pastors Levi and Leah. Well, will you join me as I close in prayer? <laughs> hey, you're not getting off that easy. You're not getting off that easy. Well, our mission tonight is to try to answer a few Easter questions. Do you ever have Easter questions? Questions like this. Why do we have to go to church on Easter? Oh, you don't. That's why you're here tonight. <laughs> you, got, you heard the weather report for tomorrow, so you came tonight. Why does the family have to come and visit every holiday? That's a tough Easter question, right? And why do we eat turkey again? I'm going to start a new tradition. Easter lobster. That'd be good, right? And what's up with the Easter bunny? Colored eggs. And Easter chocolate? I don't like chocolate. How about Easter ice cream? Mint chocolate chip. That's kind of an Easter color, right? 
Uh, well, those are not the Easter questions we're going to try to answer. But if you do discover answers to those questions, we would love to know those answers. Please send in emails and address it to Carlos, um, because I don't care about the answer. Oh, sorry. Well, I'm going to lay my cards uh, on the table right at the beginning here. We haven't gathered to celebrate the fact that winter is over, even though I'm really glad that it is. And we're not here to celebrate the fact that, East, that spring has sprung because I have allergies and it's really a pain in my head. And we're not here to celebrate the fact that Sergio won last weekend, even though that was okay too. We're here to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified and executed on a Friday. And on that first Easter Sunday morning, he's alive again forever and ever. And that changes everything. That's why we're here. So if you have your Bibles, or if you have your phone or your iPad or whatever you want to read from, uh, turn to John chapter 20. I'm going to read the first 20 verses. And this story should sound familiar because you just kind of heard Levi and Leah walk through it. Uh, But let's read it again and remind ourselves of why Easter is so important, why we're here, and what difference it makes. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been, rolled, had been, had, had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. We're going to try to answer three questions. And here they are. Say what? So what? 
And now what? So let's jump in with the say what? Now, it's not say what, okay? It's say what? So you have to practice that. Say it with me. Say what? That wasn't that good. One more. Say what? Now, everybody was saying what because nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead, did they? In fact, every account you read, whether it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, none of the disciples that heard Jesus promise after three days he was going to rise again, none of them believed it. They were not waiting outside the tomb with balloons and streamers and horns to welcome Jesus. They were back hiding for fear that the leaders that executed him would now hunt them down. No one expected him to do it. Mary goes to the tomb not because she expects him to be alive. She goes to prepare his body permanently for burial. Oh yeah, and in those verses that we read from John, they also answer you know, one of the mystery questions of life. And that is, are angels male or female? Did you ever wonder that? Obviously they're male because the angel said to the woman, why are you crying? Only men ask women why they're crying. All right? So now do we solve that on Easter as well. All right, say what? Now, here's what you've got to understand. It takes faith to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. It takes faith. I know it takes faith to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I know that. But I also want you to know, it takes faith to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So what we're going to do for just a few minutes, we're going to take kind of the main theories. And I'm not cherry-picking the easy ones. We're going to take the main theories that support Jesus not rising from the dead. And we're going to see which takes more faith. To believe one of those theories, that he didn't do it, or to believe that he did do it. Here's the first theory. They went to the wrong tomb. Now, you can understand. How many of you have ever been lost? Raise your hand. How many have ever lost anything? Right? And this theory is especially plausible because the women went to the tomb first. Right? Now, look, I'm not like picking on women. Let me just say, how many of you have ever known a woman to get lost? Anybody? How are women with GPS? How are women with Waze and MapQuest? They're really good at all that, right? So maybe the women were distraught and they kind of lost their way and they went to the wrong tomb. I say, what? John and Peter also then went to the wrong tomb? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, the two disciples that put him in the tomb, they went to the wrong tomb. It was Joseph's tomb. All the disciples went to the wrong tomb. The Jewish religious leaders also went to the wrong tomb. The Romans that were guarding the tomb, they went to the wrong tomb. They were guarding the wrong tomb. And if they did get it wrong, all they had to do to squelch this newfound religion was produce a body. If they went to the wrong tomb, maybe they were going to find the right tomb. And... But they never produce a body. They went to the wrong tomb? <laughs> Say, what? Takes a lot of faith to believe that, doesn't it? They all went to the wrong tomb? Well, uh, here's another one. Jesus passed out but didn't die on the cross. And that's semi-plausible too, right? After all, Jesus had not slept the night before, right? He's in the garden praying. He's arrested. Trials begin before sunrise, early Friday morning. He's then interrogated and questioned. And then kind of the torture begins, right? They scourge him and rip ribbons of flesh off of his back. So his back's basically bare. They pluck his beard out. 
They have him carry the crossbeam all the way to the place where they're going to crucify him. They hoist him up onto the cross and drive spikes through his hands and the insteps of his feet. They then plunge a spear into his side. They throw him into a damp, dark tomb. But the damp tomb revives him. What? Oh, yeah. And after a couple of days, Jesus steps out of that tomb because he revived. And there are stories, right, where people are buried alive. And so I'm giving you all an assignment. If first chance you show up at my funeral and I'm lying, please pinch me because I don't want to be buried alive, all right? So you have permission. Pinch me as hard as you can in there, all right? Not now, but if I'm lying in that box, all right? Well, anyway, may Jesus revived. Oh, yeah, but a couple of days later... He happens to be jogging from Jerusalem to Emmaus, just a seven-mile jog, on the feet that had spikes driven through them, with his back that has no flesh, with hands that have holes in him. Oh, yeah, and the side that has the spear in it. Now he's out jogging on Sunday, and he appears to the disciples as the king of glory. Say, what? It takes a lot of faith to believe that, doesn't it? I was wounded a, a couple of weeks ago. I was leaving a, an office complex, and the receptionist at the desk wanted me to see something on her computer screen, so she said, well, come on around here. And I was going around the desk, and there were some boxes piled there that usually aren't there, and I trip over the boxes because my cat-like reflexes are kind of <laughs> slowing down a little bit. I trip over the box, I put out my left hand, and my hand goes through the top box. It only gets cut with the cardboard, but I wind up with three flaps of skin. Do you ever get that? You know, it's kind of bloody under the skin's flapping. You know, all of you women going through pregnancy, that's nothing. I had three flaps of skin, right? And it was hurting. And I went out, it was snowing. I put it in the snow. I go back in, I put three band-aids on. I kept them on for four days, trying to get sympathy from my wife. It didn't work. Oh, yeah. I had three little flaps of skin, and I was almost out of commission for four days. Jesus is almost dead. His back ripped bare. Spikes through his hands and feet, a sword through his side, and he appears as the king of glory and convinces all of his disciples that he's alive even though he died. Say what? That takes too much faith to believe that, right? How about this one? The disciples stole the body. They kind of liked this new life, you know, traveling around, doing the preaching thing. They, they didn't want to go back to their real jobs. They figured, I'll oh, just keep preaching, right, because that's not a real job. And so rather than go back to fishing and tax collecting, they want to stay as preachers. So they sneak, a, sneak up to the tomb. They take the body and tell everybody that Jesus rose from the dead, but they know he really didn't because they stole the body. Say what? All of a sudden, these cowardly wimps turn into SEAL Team 6 overnight. They sneak out on this mission at night. They overcome a Roman guard. They take the body. They rip the Roman seal off the tomb. They roll the stone away. They hide the body somewhere and declare to everybody that Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, yeah. And they all die as martyrs. They're stoned to death. They're fed to lions and wild animals in the arena. They're crucified. They're thrown off the tops of towers and their legs shatter. And then their skulls are bashed in. And not one of them breaks. How good are you at keeping a secret? Not one of them breaks. They stole the body? Say, what? 
It takes faith to believe Jesus raised from the dead. And it takes faith to believe he didn't rise from the dead too. So don't go thinking there's only faith on one side of this equation. There's faith on both sides of the equation. And let me tell you, you look at the evidence and you look at the theories, and I think you'll agree with me, it takes faith to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it takes faith to believe that he didn't rise from the dead. It takes more faith to believe he didn't do it. Say what? He really did. Well, that brings us to our second question then. If he did it, like, so what? Like, what does it matter? Is, is it that big of a deal? Well, here's why it matters. If the resurrection is true, it's all true. And if the resurrection's false, it's all false. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the King of the universe. He claimed to be the forgiver. He came to be the rescuer for our sin. He came to be the one ushering in the kingdom of God. And he kept saying, and if you don't believe what I'm saying, just watch. I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm coming back. You don't believe those things about you? Just watch. I'm going to check out, and I'm checking back in. If it's true, it's all true. And if it's false, it's all false. Now, we don't have time to tease out all of the so what's, but I want to tease out two. Two so what's, and they're all about what Jesus takes away. Jesus takes a few things away from us. He removes some things. The first thing Jesus removes is our sin and our guilt. Now, just to make sure I'm not just speaking for myself here, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. We're going to take an Easter quiz, all right? And uh, so I'm going to ask you a few questions. Don't answer until I ask you to answer, or you'll be really embarrassed until then, all right? But at the end, you won't be that. You'll be a little embarrassed. But if you answer before, you're going to be really embarrassed, all right? So here we go. Don't answer yet. How many of you have ever told a lie? Don't put your hand up yet. I I said don't answer. I tell you. How many ever told a lie? Have you ever um, stolen something that doesn't belong to you, big or small? You know, Grand Theft Auto, something like that. Ever steal something? (laughs) Have you ever cheated? Cheated on a test? Cheated on a big exam? Cheated on, oh yeah, it's that time of year. Um, Have you ever taken credit for something you didn't do, someone else said you kind of took credit for it? Have you ever said something that you wish you didn't say and you shouldn't have said? Have you ever done anything that you really shouldn't have done and now you kind of live with some regret? Okay, now, have you ever done any of those things? Raise your hands. Raise your hands if you've done those things. Yeah, now keep them up. Come on, keep them up. Be proud sinners, right? Sin boldly. Sin boldly. Raise your hand. Okay. Now, look around. Look around, everybody. You're with the group of sinners tonight, right? And those those that don't have their hands up, they're the worst of the lot. Because they're lying with God looking right down. They're in church telling lies, right? They're the most despicable ones in the group. The Bible tells us over and over and over again that Jesus removes our sin and guilt. You know, God loves to communicate in pictures. And he gives us pictures in the Bible of how that sin and guilt gets removed. And the pictures are a little weird because the Bible was written to people a long time ago, and their pictures are a little different than our pictures. But here's one of my favorite pictures. One day, uh, John the Baptist, that's Jesus' freaky cousin, he's baptizing people in the Jordan. He's the John the Baptist. He was baptized. That was his job. He's baptizing people. And all of a sudden, one day, he sees Jesus on the banks of the Jordan. 
And he stops the, stop, guys, stop, stop. He points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what the heck does that mean? Does that mean Jesus had like real white curly hair? Like the Lamb of God? No, no, it's a picture, but it's a weird picture for us, but that picture made perfect sense to them. You see, going to church back in those days didn't involve going to church, you know, dressed up for Easter the way it does for us or going to church the way we do. You would take your lamb to church with you then. You know, we have some people here at Calvary bring their dogs. Well, they would bring their lambs. That's kind of funny. Kids are saying, oh, this would be great, right? Yeah, but there was one problem. The lambs didn't go home with you. The lambs stayed at church. They didn't live at church. They died at Some of you are thinking, yeah, I feel like I'm dying right now. Well, the lambs really died at church. Now, what's up with that? Well, here's what's up with that. God is teaching his people through that picture, through thousands of years and thousands and thousands of sacrifices. Here's what he's teaching him. The innocent can die for the guilty. So here's a guilty sinner, like all of you, right? And they're bringing their little lamb to church. And they get to church, and the little lamb stays. You go home having been pronounced forgiven. The innocent died for the guilty. Now John the Baptist on that day sees Jesus, points to Jesus and says, there he is. He's the Lamb of God who takes away, removes your sin and guilt. All of those other lambs were just pictures to the ultimate lamb. That's what's going on. They were all pictures of this lamb. You know, the Bible has a funny way of talking about sin. Here's how the Bible talks about sin. Sin is a me-first kind of life. Now, you may not think that that's such a big deal, but we live me-first, right? I've been thinking about this uh, the last couple of days. How many of you got free coffee at Wawa the other day? Yeah, that was like a me-first fiasco in there, wasn't it? Me first into the parking line, me first before the pots, me first on the way out. Well, you don't have to pay, you just kind of run out any door. Me first. You ever, are you ever coming up on an intersection and you're making a left-hand turn? And you're in a red light. But there are some cars on the far side and they're coming in your direction. Now, you're the first one at the light and you're turning left. And you want, maybe it's just me, right? I watch the signal for the cars in the opposite direction over this way, right? I'm watching them because as soon as that light turns yellow for them, that means I'm getting ready to go because I'm going before those cars come in my way straight. I'm making that light. You never do that, right? How about in Dunkin' Donuts? It's me first. I, I pull into this Dunkin' most mornings, and I kind of time it, right? If there are a bunch of cars getting in, I time it so I get the parking spot through the door ahead of everybody else. That's how we live. God says, I built you and designed you to live a you-first life, but we step in, we want to live me-first lives, and that gums up everything. Why do you lie? Why do you cheat? Why do you take stuff that's not your own? Why do you say things you shouldn't say? Why do you do things you shouldn't do? Because we're living a me-first kind of life. And Jesus removes the sin and guilt of a me-first life because he lived you-first. Wow, that's the one picture. Well, Jesus also removes something else. He removes the distance between us and God. Now you may be thinking, distance? Yeah. Sin and guilt always cause alienation and separation, don't they? If you're married or grew up in a family, you know how that works, right? If you're married to someone and you sin against them, all of a sudden there's distance between you. 
There may be slamming doors, silent treatment, lots of, but there's distance between you. And if you're kind of, you know, trying to be nice and kind, there's still psychological distance. You're separated because of the sin. Well, that's pictured through the Bible as well. When, when our first ancestors sinned, God kicked them out of the garden, the place of his presence, and he put a an angel as a guard with a flaming sword so they can't get back into where God is. There's now distance between them. And then he builds a temple because he wants to be with his people, but he can't be with his people because they have sin and guilt, and that's causing a separation. Do you know what a temple is? It's nothing but a series of barriers. God is symbolized in the middle and all these barriers to where we are. And there's this really cool verse at the end of Matthew's gospel, and it's all about that Easter weekend. Here's what it says. At that moment, at that moment, the curtain of the temple, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, that's where God symbolically was, and everybody else, it's separate. The curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. It's almost as if God took that barrier in his hands and he rips it apart and he says, welcome home. But the welcome home took Jesus giving his life and rising again and then there's a welcome home. Access is restored. Reconciliation. All that happens because of what Jesus did for us. You see, Easter is about removing things. It removes our sin and guilt, and the work of Jesus removes the distance between us and God. I think maybe saying, well, that's good. We're almost done. Well, two out of three questions. Here's the last question. Well, now what? Like, that's good. We got, say what? So what? Well, now what? Um, what, What should we do? What should we do? Well, here's the reality. Because of Christ's life and death and resurrection, our sin and guilt can be removed. And the distance between us and God can be removed. Those things can be taken away. But they're not taken away for everybody. You see, in order for your sin and guilt to be taken away, and in order for the distance to be taken away, you have to admit that you've been living a so, uh, you know, you've been living kind of a me first kind of life and that's gotten you in a world of trouble and you've got to admit that you don't deserve God's presence at all. But you not only have to admit, you have to accept God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation. Admit you've got a problem and then accept. But admitting's tough, isn't it? A few weeks ago, true story, few weeks ago, uh, I finished the first uh, service and I walked through that back door and I'm walking through the atrium to get more coffee because just like you get tired, I get tired looking at you all. Um, and as I'm walking across the atrium, this uh, elderly gentleman, a longtime member at Calvary Church, grabs me, Charles, Charles, I have to see you for a minute. I said, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, please don't be long. Please, I, I need coffee. I got to get back in. And he says to me, hey, I got a big favor to ask. He said, next Sunday morning, Get up a little earlier if you have to, and you know, take the um, food coloring in your house out of the kitchen and put it into a little bowl and make it as dark as you can. 
Put a lot of blue in there, a little red in there. Don't put any yellow in there. Make it as dark as you can. Mix it all up. And then take the darkest food coloring you can get and smear it all over your bald head. Because every time you bow your head, the reflection off of your head really makes it hard for me to listen and pay attention. almost blinds me. He's looking for another church now, that guy. Well, you know, the reality is you have to admit something. You have to admit the problem before you're going to find a solution. I didn't put any food coloring on my head, by the way. But admitting's hard. But if you admit, then you know you need to accept. And God can say, welcome home. And have your sin and guilt removed. This time of year is uh, the season of invitations, isn't it? You notice that? It's a season of invitations. Invitations from Mickey and Minnie to come on down, right? After a long, cold winter, come on down. Enjoy the sunshine. Enjoy the parks. You deserve it. Invitation down to the Phillies. Come on to Citizens Bank Park. Come on a Hatfield Dog Night, Dollar Dog Night. Come on down and watch the Phillies. Try to make it to another year without the playoffs. Just come on down. And then there are wedding invitations, right? Now, here's what I want to know. Why do people insist on getting married when the weather's nice and you could do lots of other things? Get married in the winter when there's nothing else to do. They get married when you could choose to do lots of other things. Well, anyway, that's, that's a different sermon. Well, I've got an invitation for you, too. It's an Easter invitation. There are no candles. There are no fireworks. No Mickey and Minnie. No pixie dust, no fancy cards of an invitation. This invitation comes from Jesus. And it comes with a cross stained with his blood. And it comes with an empty tomb where God says, paid in full. Jesus stands before every one of us and says, I'll be your Savior. I'll be your forgiver. I'll be the one that reconciles you to God. I'll take away all your sin and guilt. I'll take away the distance between you and God. I'll be your king. I'll rescue you. Ball's in your court. The invitation's been issued. How are you going to respond? Let's close in prayer. You can answer them yourself. Father, we confess that we don't deserve any of the good things that we talked about tonight. We don't deserve to have our sin and guilt removed. We don't deserve to have the distance between us and you removed. And yet Jesus comes on a mission of removal, removing sin and guilt and removing distance. That's his mission. And now he stands before each one of you and he says, I'll be your savior. I'll be your king. I'll be your forgiver. Falls in your court. Answer him yourself.